Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Well, we have made our way to chapter 14 of the book of Mark. When we got to chapter 11, we entered the last week of Jesus' life. He comes to the temple on a Monday, and now it is Thursday evening. So we are actually approaching the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, a day that will change the world. When you first get to chapter 14, the first two verses tell you that you're two days away from Passover. So in the course of, in the span of about 11 verses, Mark covers two days. But then when you get to uh, where we are now in verse 12, until Jesus is buried, Mark will take 108 verses to deal with 24 hours, 10 times the amount of space. Uh, That tells us that we are in the heart of the book, because a lot has to happen in 24 hours. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. There's going to be a rest, a trial, crucifixion, death, burial, what we call the passion of Jesus. So theologically and proportionately, this is the heart of the gospel. And our task is to understand what these last hours really mean. And they're packed with meaning, but it all starts with the supper. Up to now, Jesus has predicted his death. Now he's going to symbolically enact it at this meal. And then, of course, eventually, here very soon, he will actually die on a cross. But it starts at a dinner table, and that means that the meaning of the passion begins in this setting, as we observe two things about this dinner. The first is who's at the dinner? Who's at the dinner? And then secondly, what's for dinner? So the guests in the menu tell us very important things about the meaning. Mark gives us a great visual in this text, as he has done many times already. I've told you about uh, the Markin sandwich where he starts to tell a story, then inserts a story in between it, and then finishes the story. It looks sort of like this from a textual standpoint. This is your main story with this centerpiece coming in between, and this explains the outer two pieces. So I actually have a visual for you. Uh, since it's a meal that we're at, this is what it looks like right here. The meat of it, the meat of the sandwich, is in the middle. Okay, so it's the central piece. The outer pieces, they provide context and meaning to this. So, in verses 12 to 16, these are important verses, although we're not going to look a whole lot at them. This is the preparation for the Passover. The disciples know that it's Thursday. They know that they've got to get things set up. Uh, and it reads sort of like a spy novel. It's a little bit, uh, you almost hear Mission Impossible music playing in the background when you read this. Because he says things like, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, Jesus' disciples say to him, Where do you want us to do this? He sent two of his disciples and he told them, We don't know which two. There's no names. It's very secret. Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water. (laughs) You're going to go into a hustling, bustling city and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Get him. 
I don't know his name. I don't know anything about him. You're just going to see him. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, code, that's code. Where is my guest room and where will I eat Passover with my disciples? And then he'll show you a large room upstairs and make preparations for us there. And then there's just this important verse right here. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as he told them. Now, why is that there? That's there for two reasons. Number one, we've already been introduced to Judas at the beginning of chapter 14 and his plot to kill Jesus. Jesus needs time alone with the disciples at this dinner before everything kicks off. He needs this time to explain a little bit about what's happening and how they're related to it. So he can't tell everybody where he's at. He sends two unnamed disciples, although another gospel tells us. But Mark keeps it secret. Sends them out to find the place, and only two disciples know where this dinner is going to happen tonight. And Judas is not one of them. So the first thing is, is I, I need time with the disciples before Judas enacts his plan to betray me. And then the second reason is, is so that you can see that even though this 24 hours is it's, it's overwhelming with detail, You've got all kinds of political plays. You've got people, all different kinds of groups of people coming to play in this. You have uh, chaos in the time. Uh, You've got legal matters being handled. And Jesus wants to make it very clear that I'm over every detail of every second of this next 24 hours. Don't worry. I'm not the tragic hero. I'm not the one who fell into the hands of the enemy and... It all ended. No, I've planned this up to now. So that's why it's important. But in verse 17, the Passover begins. So now they all have gathered. Now Jesus takes the rest of them there, and they have gathered, and they come to the house with the twelve. So as they enter this place, now just a little word about this. They're going to go till midnight. This is probably 6 p.m. So in the afternoon, they would have slaughtered the lamb. You sacrifice the lamb, some of the blood you put somewhere, and then you, you, you burnt the sacrifice, and then some of it you ate. And that's what they ate at Passover. And this is a meal that would have lasted about six hours. He wouldn't have got up from the table. It's a long, sort of sacred, uh, detailed meal. And everyone is enjoying it. Uh, they're several hours into the meal, because I mean, they're eating, um, they're relating to one another. Remember, mealtime, very intimate time. This would have felt very much like Thanksgiving often feels. All this preparation and work come together for us to sit around the table together as the closest family and friends. It would have felt a little like that, but more sacred. And every bit as intimate. If you shared a meal with someone in that culture, you basically shared your life with them. You were close. So, um, so here they are in this very sacred, intimate moment. And Jesus throws this out. While they're eating, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me will betray me. Now, this is the kind of thing that will ruin a Thanksgiving. And it will ruin a Thanksgiving. This will ruin an intimate moment, a very sacred moment. And it will create a buzz in the room, and boy, does it create a buzz in the room. Uh, because everyone goes on the defensive. Because if I said that out loud, you'd be like, oh, please, God, tell me it isn't me. I know it isn't me. 
And that's what happens. They go on the defensive, and they get very distressed. Like any one of us would get distressed, this word here. It's only used two times in Mark, and it means grief. And it's always grief in, in light of failing Jesus. So it's that feeling of, oh, no, I didn't come through. You ever have that feeling in your life when you go, oh, no, I dropped the ball? It's, it's as deep as you can feel in that regard. That is the feeling that they're feeling. But then quickly, one by one, look what he says, one by one, surely not I. So you've got this horror moment where everyone is feeling defensive, and there's no relief to it because Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, while everyone's saying it's not you, Jesus doesn't do this for you. Well, I know it's not you. Don't worry. Because everyone would love that feeling, because then it would be like, thank God, I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> See, that's how we would be. But, and you'd want, you'd think, hey, Jesus, relieve the tension in the room, but he doesn't. He said to them, it's one of you. It's one of the 12. So there's obviously some people, other people in this room having the dinner. But he is saying, it's my most intimate group. It's one of my most intimate group. It's one of the 12. But he doesn't name them yet. It's like he doesn't bring any relief to that. He's ambiguous, and he's intentionally being vague to keep this feeling in the room. Now, the other Gospels eventually will point out right here at the table that it's Judas, but not Mark. Mark keeps it hanging over, and it's very clear why he wants to do that, because he wants everyone in the room to do some soul-searching before they eat. He wants everyone in the room to do some soul searching. So he's basically saying, I want everyone to look into their hearts. Now this is incredibly important. Listen, you can't understand the passion. You can't understand what Jesus is doing for the human race if you don't understand why you need it. You got to understand that you need it. And who needs that more than the group that thinks they're already in? No one needs that more than the group that thinks they're already in. James Edwards, who is a commentator on Mark, uh, one of my favorites actually, uh, he writes this In placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, Mark vividly conveys that the many for whom Jesus pours out his life include his own companions around the table. The sin that necessitates the sending of God's Son is not someone else's sin. It's not the sin of Caligula or Nero or a legion of tyrants that come after. It's the sin of the tenants of his own vineyard of his own disciples, of Peter and James, of you and me. The essential evil in the world and the essential atonement for the evil of the world are present at the table of the Lord's Supper whenever it is celebrated. That has to be a reality when we come to the table. Do we grasp the nature of the evil that is being addressed in this moment? And do I understand that evil in me? Uh, you've, you know G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton's a very interesting character. He's a guy that recently I have been reading a little bit about, just sort of haphazardly, not on purpose. But I came across something that I had read about him earlier, and he's very, very interesting character in light of the political times that we're living in. Uh, 
But this is right around the turn of the century, at the end of the 19th century, end of the 20th century. Is when he, but he went to work for the London Times. And, uh, and that was when they were going to write. They had an essay. The London Times said, hey, we're going to throw out an essay. We're going to get some, of the, some wise sages to speak to it. He was a writer, philosopher. Uh, he was many things. Uh, and their question was, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? And Chesterton sent in the shortest and uh, the shortest reply and the most to the point. And here's what he wrote in. He said, I am. Let me ask you a question because this is really, really uh, profoundly revealing about each one of us. Where do you see the problem of the world? Where do you see it? Is it some group? Is it... Is it some class of people? Is it some race of people? Is it some political party? Because it's easy to spot it out there. It's very difficult to answer this question, I am the problem. I, I, as I've reflected on, I've known this for years, this is something you probably already knew too that he did this, but how profound it is what kind of self-awareness do you got to have? Alexander Solzhenitsyn said the same thing. Essentially, he said, how simple would it be, he says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and we could, and we could say, there they go, there they are. He writes, and it were necessary only to separate us from them. Then we could just say, hey, let's gather them all in a room and kill them. Let's destroy them. Then we will have destroyed evil. But he says this, and you'll probably remember this line, but the dividing line, or the line dividing good and evil, cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing, he says, to crush or to cut or to pierce a piece of his own heart? So Jesus is making it clear That what he's about to do is for everyone, even the ones who might not think they need it. And in fact, that gets pushed home a little bit more as you get to verse 20, where we just were. Because notice what he says. It's not just one of the 12. This is important. This, is, this would be like saying, oh, that's the guy that goes to church with me. The guy that's in my small group. The guy that's in my... Wait a minute. He goes... He's in the... She's a... She's been a part of the, she grew up with, she went to that. See, it, that's exactly what he's saying. But it's even more intimate than that. This guy is the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me. This guy is eating with me. His hands are in my food. What is Jesus, what is he saying? He is saying that this message, this part right here, it's a message the passion, what Jesus does, for the whole world. But right here in this moment, he wants to make sure that the people that are close, the ones in church this morning, realize that they're not better than the ones who aren't there. He wants to make sure they know. This is for the friends of Jesus. The most intimate. The ones who say, I'm following him. And see, here's the interesting thing. 
We've got all this introspection, or should have introspection. It's got little introspection, but you've got lots of judgment of others. But no one can spot Judas. This is why it's scary, because we can't walk out to one another and say, it must be you. Because usually the person hiding on the inside hides really well. You don't know what he's doing. He looks in, he looks the part, he's sitting around the table, he even handles the food, but he's not one of us. When I was, a, when I was younger, I mean, this is really a lot of years ago, over 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, and I was, I was doing a talk, and I titled the talk, uh, The Most Dangerous Thing About Christianity. And one of my mentors uh, I was telling him about the talk, and I was telling him I was about to give it, and he, he cautioned me. He said, be very careful when you're approaching a talk and you use a superlative like the most dangerous thing, that that's really what the most dangerous thing is. The most dangerous, along these lines, it was a sermon on Judas, and I took that caution to heart, and I don't remember coming across the verse that I'm about to show you now of, uh, that actually proves the point, although I didn't know it at the time, so I don't really get credit for this thought at all. But, but it is true. The most dangerous thing about Christianity is that you can look in, you can look the part, and then in reality be on the outs. And not only did you do a great job of deceiving others, and by the way, that's what's going on here. You deceive others. You even may deceive yourself. How horrible of a moment in Matthew 7 when Jesus says we're all gathered together and everyone says, hey, I did this and I did that and I was at the table. I had an invitation. I got in the room. And Jesus looks at you and says, I never knew you. Is that the most, is that the moment of all moments? You think you know him, but you don't. And the most dangerous thing about Christianity is you can look in and not be in. And how is it the most dangerous? Well, look what Jesus says about him. The Son of Man, let me tell you, here's the end results of me, Jesus says, the Son of Man, and the one who betrays me, the one none of you could have spotted. Here's our two ends. One of them is I will do exactly what was written about me. In other words, I will do what my mission was. I'll fulfill my mission. Even though it's a horrible one, I'll fulfill my mission. Here's what he says, but woe to that man. That's literally what it says in the original language, that man. In fact, it says it right here too. It's translated for him, but it's the same words. That means it says the son of man will go as it is written about him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for that man never to have been born. Better to have never even been given a mission. Not only will he not fulfill his mission, it would be better if he never had one. That's the, it's, about, it's about the harshest thing you can say about a human being. And it's said about someone who's sitting around the table. This cannot be said about someone who's not sitting around the table. It's a harsh end for anyone who doesn't know Christ. That's a harsh end. It's worse 
for anyone who thinks they're in and they're not. Better to have never been. It sounds like you have a worse fate than Jesus himself. I'm going to a cross. Where you go? And we all know essentially what happened to Judas. See, the thing about Judas is he, he liked being in. There were parts of it that probably made him feel good about himself. But at the end, he, he never really wanted to pay a price. He never really was devoted. He's that guy. He likes looking the part. He likes saying he's one of the twelve. But on his own and all alone, and when you see him out, that's not who he really is. So that's the question for you. Somebody sees me walk into church, drive into church, sees me sit, sees me stand for songs, sees me pay attention, they would assume I'm in. Yes! But that doesn't mean you are. And by the way, this is a really important thing in this text, is we're not supposed to go looking for each other. Well, let's see who the Judas is. That's not what we're supposed to do. Here's what Jesus is saying. I see you. I don't need to be running around trying to figure out who Judas is. Here's the important and scary piece. Jesus knows who you are at the table. And Jesus is saying, I see you. I know you're not real. Now, let me tell you something about Passover. So here they are at this meal, because now we're at the centerpiece of this sandwich. That's the outer piece. And that outer piece is going to get filled in even a little bit more, because Jesus isn't letting anyone at the table off the hook. Because by now, probably they would have figured out there is one betrayer. But now they're going to realize, ah, don't let yourself off the hook even yet. If you've said, oh, well, that's not me. If you've already said that, be careful. We're not done. Jesus will come back to us. But in the meantime, he's going to insert this really important thing at the meal. And it comes at the, the spring festival. It comes at Passover. They're commemorating the defining moment of Israel's history when they're released in, from their slavery in Egypt. And remember this dr dramatic, graphic picture of death is literally judgment is coming through the camp, the entire city, the whole entire nation. And only those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts can escape it. And by the way, the Jews would have died too if they didn't have it. It wasn't national. It was everyone without the blood on those doorposts. You are subject to God's justice. And you remember, death passes over those, that's why it's called Passover, who have the blood on on the doorpost. Now, this feast was celebrated every year. And up to this point right here, this night when Jesus is doing it with them, it has been done for 1,500 years. This is sacred and ritual and traditional and powerful moment, the most powerful moment in Israel's, of all their festivals, really. This is the feast. And, uh, and there's... It's, it's a beautiful way, this thing. There's benedictions, there's blessings, there's a question that a child asks. The host answers the question. They're singing of songs, a set set of 
Hallel songs, psalms that you had, 113 to 118. They would read these and they would sing them. And within the meal, scattered throughout it would be four cups. There's four cups you can eat uh, or they would drink, and each one would sort of start a different piece of this whole meal. And at one point in the meal, and this would be Jesus, it was around the third cup. And at the third cup, the food would be explained. So all of the, 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 the you know, the, uh, the bread and the wine and the herbs and the uh, lamb and the meat, all of that, would each piece would be explained. So he'd pick up the bread, the host would pick up the bread, and he would say this every single time, every year. This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. He would say that every time and they would eat it. If you notice in the Gospels, the main course, the lamb that they had already been eaten by the third cup, they would have already been way into eating this lamb. It's never mentioned. Only the bread and wine are mentioned. They never mention the lamb. And one writer said this, the main course is not on the table, it's at the table. Which means basically Jesus is about to do a radical change of script. I know when I hold up the bread, you usually hear me say that this is the affliction of our people in the wilderness. I'm telling you, Jesus is saying, it's my affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. This is my body broken for you. That's what he's saying. This is my body. In fact, 1 Corinthians, which says this right here, for Christ, our Passover, he is our Passover. He has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. What's the feast? He is. You say, what's on the menu? Jesus. It tells you. What's the passion? It's Jesus about to be sacrificed. Who needs it? Everyone. Even the ones in the room. Even the ones with an invitation. Even the ones sitting around the table. Even the ones eating the same food he's doing. How many people need it? Everyone. And what do they need? They need Christ. And that's what he does. He initiates this new thing. He says, this is my body. I will bring about the ultimate exodus. Every single one of us are enslaved to sin. And Jesus says, I'm the great deliverer. I'm greater than Moses. You won't have to eat another Passover lamb after this one. This is it. The old goes away and the new. And when Jesus dies, the temple veil is ripped It's over. This is it. I'm making a new covenant with you. In fact, that's what he says right here. I mean, here he says, uh, this is my body. And this would have, hey, listen, when you're normally, when you've been celebrating this all your life and you know what they're going to say about the bread and somebody tells you, no, this is actually me. How shocking of a moment is this? How much more shocking is it to tell me that uh, after I have already drank out of this cup, that this is, you're saying it's your blood. You're telling me I'm drinking your blood? This is the blood of the covenant. This is my oath. I'm making a dying oath to you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's actually saying... I tell you the truth. I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom. So here's where we're coming from, old covenant to new covenant, into the kingdom of God. There'll come a day 
What happens now, I will enact it now, and then one day we will celebrate this together. In other words, Jesus is make a dying oath to make sure you get all the way to the kingdom and all the way to the end. I am committing myself to make sure you make it into eternity. And we will celebrate again. That's Jesus' oath and commitment. So it's a dying commitment to each of us. And then you say, well, well, how do you take it? I see who needs it. I see what's going to happen for me. And what does Jesus say? He just basically says in verse 22, right here, he basically says, after he gave thanks, he said, take it. Now, this tells you something else about salvation, about what's on the menu. Because it's a meal. If it's a meal, then we're talking about close relationship. Jesus wants people who are in relationship with him. And furthermore, this meal is something you've got to receive actively. It could be a great meal on the table. You've got to grab it, take it, eat it. You've got to chomp on it. You've got to think about it. You've got to swallow it. It's got to go into you. It's got to digest, and it's got to nourish you. That's what salvation is. It's that intimate. It becomes that much of a part of you. There's no way to just come to the table, handle the pieces, and then walk away and not be changed and transformed. This is something that's going to happen inside of you. That's what the new covenant is. You will no longer just eat this and be proud of yourself that you had it. No, this is going to go in you. And it is going to change your life. You can't walk out of this room again the same. That's what Jesus is saying. And so you get nourished on it. You're nourished by it. It's not a table of merit. It's a table of grace. You don't come to the table saying, well, this is my seat. This is where I sit. I deserve to sit here because I'm, well, I, I met him and we were, and we, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's a table of grace. This is not something Jesus doesn't owe you this meal. He's offering this meal. Now, there's another layer. How sacred and how serious is this moment for us and for them? Look what he says in verse 27, in case by now everyone is thinking, well, we have figured out it's Judas, and there's a little relief in the room. Certainly I'm going to be okay. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you will all fall away. All of you are going to fall away. No one's off the hook. Even, even when the worst person is identified in the room and relief comes to you, don't you get a little relief when you watch the news and you go, I'm glad I'm not like that guy? I'm glad I've never done anything like that? You get a little relief, and here's Jesus saying, no, 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 no. Hey, you may not be Judas, but you have Judas in you. You may not have committed all the evil of the world and the worst sins of the world, but they're in you and you're capable of them. And in the right moment, you would do them. Don't even imagine yourself out of that circle of sinners. And by the way, all of you are going to fall away. None of you will be here when I die. This is a moment too big for all of you. In fact, look, Jesus quotes Zechariah. I, this is God, says, I will strike the shepherd. That's Jesus. I will kill the shepherd, and when I do, the sheep will scatter. All the sheep will. There'll be no one standing around. Christ will go to the cross alone, and what he does is for everyone, even 
the ones who think they're on the inner circle. Jesus isn't letting anyone off the hook. And what he's essentially saying is this. I will come through for you. None of you can come through for me. This is all based on what I'm doing for you. It's not based on anything you've done for me. That's really important. I'm dying. My body and blood will be spilled, broken and spilled for you, and every single person needs it on the spectrum. No one's better off than anyone else. Now, of course, Peter has a hard time with this. And... uh, No doubt Peter would have been the most likely to succeed if you were to take a poll, especially in his own mind, which we're about to see. Peter would have been the most likely. He was the leader. Uh, He seemed to have the answers at times when when they really needed him. And even though he has messed up a lot, everyone would think, yeah, Peter's our our best shot at doing this. But look look how lost he is. He's on the other side of Judas. He's on the complete other end of the spectrum. Peter says, even if they all fall away, he's throwing everyone under the bus except himself. Not only, he's completely excluded himself from the entire group. He didn't say, I am. He says, they are. They're your problem, not me. And see, that attitude can't be at the table. And Jesus is teasing this out for Peter, just in case there's someone in the room that says, yeah, I get it, but come on. In case you're doing that, Peter's, Jesus is going to make it clear, even the best among us. And what you have is Peter is literally trying to outcommit Jesus. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I must die, oh, you're talking about you dying? I'll die. He's like he's trying to outcommit him. I'll never deny you. You can almost hear Peter say, I don't need you to die for me. I don't need this meal. I've got this. That's the You know how you miss out on the wonder of Jesus' death? It's just you just don't think you need it. And so Peter does that, truly unaware of his own sin. I'll die if I have to. Hey, I'll eat this if you tell me to eat it, but you do your part and then I'll do mine. There's no, listen, salvation is not a God does his part and then you do yours. You will not do yours. That's the whole point of this text is you have no part because you are incapable of coming through. And Peter's about to learn how incapable he is. You want to see how incapable any of us are, the best among us are of coming through? for our own salvation? Look what Jesus says to him. I tell you the truth today. Now here it is this evening. This in, very, in fact, Jesus goes so far as to say this very night. Here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, in the next 60 to 180 hours, or I'm sorry, minutes, the next 60 to 180 minutes, You will fail me miserable. You will totally and deliberately disassociate yourself from me completely within minutes from now, as sincere as you sound. 
you're going to fail. Before, before the rooster crows, before it crows twice, only Mark. <laughs> Thank you, fellas. Two times. Now listen, Peter's helping Mark write the book of Mark. So Peter remembers the rooster crowing twice, which is a really interesting thing when you consider that, yeah, this is going <laughs> to go twice, but you're going to deny me three times. And this isn't just a, this is three denials. This is not one slip up. This is total defection. Uh, before this night is over. And this is what uh, one commentator wrote this, and I thought it was brilliant, and I just want to make sure you hear it. He says this, This very night, before a cock has raised its voice twice to witness to its wakefulness to approaching dawn, you, Peter, will raise your voice not merely twice, but three times. And not to witness to your wakefulness, but to witness to the wakelessness of your allegiance to me. So understood, the incident belongs to a common biblical theme, man's rebuke by the lower creation. You know what this little story tells you? Two things. The first thing is, the rooster is more awake to morning than, Jesus is, or than Peter is to Jesus. That's the first. And the second thing it says is, Peter, you're so guilty. You're so unaware of yourself. You're so sinful that I won't need to confront you. I'll let a rooster do it. That's how far off the mark you are. That's where every single one of us sit. A rooster could call us out. That's a sacred moment. Luke is the one who tells us that Satan, Jesus says to Peter, Satan's desiring to sift you as wheat. That's in a moment like at the Lord's table. Satan would love nothing more than for you to be the guy or the gal who looks in but isn't. As soon as there's a time to pay a cost, you're gone. You like the meal. You like the company. But you don't like the cost. If that's you, you're headed for the worst possible plight. And so this is the time for you to say, God, if that's my heart, I need to deal with that this morning. So you come to the table now. This is a serious, sacred moment because Jesus is essentially saying, consider your heart Here's the two facts. God sees and Satan's lurking. He would love to deceive you. And so the question is, have I trusted him completely and do I understand the depth of my need for what he did for me? For me. That's the first one. And the second one is, am I just going through motions because I've done it all my life, because it makes me feel good? Do I run at the first sign of cost? Because that would say I have not, I have not taken this in like Jesus says. 